Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Can business help peace? And can the process by which peace comes into being be useful or indeed help business? My social impact pioneer today, Tim Fort, believes so. As one of the recent nominees for the 2024 Nobel Peace Prize, yes, you heard it, the Nobel Peace Prize, Tim Fort is a prolific thinker and writer on all avenues of business and peace. He has written 100 articles, reviews, chapters, along with 12 books, and he's edited many more. Two of his books have won the Best Book Award for the Academy of Management for Social Issues. And he's currently working with Kristen Hahn, who's the executive producer of Apple TV's The Morning Show, on how shared cultural experiences can provide common ground for people who otherwise, well, just disagree. More on that in a bit. During our conversation, expect to get super practical. We're going to explore questions such as how do you create peace? What can businesses learn from the peace process? And indeed conflict. And how can we, well, just get along a bit better? So Tim, I am very excited about this conversation today. Thank you so much for giving your time and uh, welcome to our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I am going to be enjoying talking with you. And, you know, I've been working with Business Fights Poverty since about 2008. And so it's been a long-standing relationship. I love working with you folks and I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Well, it's not just that it's a long-standing relationship. It's the fact that you've been thinking about peace. I think, for quite a, a reasonable amount of time. And I, I wanted to take you, sort of roll you back a little bit on that journey. And really, what got you first thinking about peace in general, but also that kind of intersection between business and peace in particular? So, I mean, I'm a person who's thought about peace-related issues, I suppose, all my life. Maybe it's because I ended up with a PhD in theology. And if you're doing that well, I think that you want to think about things like that which is not to say that it's always done well, but I think that that is a, a goal that, that a lot of people who think about those kind of things do have. But it was a little bit, um, you know, it's, it's a story. The story is when I was an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, and I was a year away from going up for tenure. And the dean at the time did me a wonderful favor. He told me the year before I went up, he said, Tim, you're going to get it. Don't worry about it. I assure you that you're going to get it, which is a wonderful thing to do for a professor when they're going up for tenure. I mean, you know, most of them are you know, scratching their eyeballs out and stuff like that. So it was really good. And I was writing my first book with Oxford University Press on ethics and governance, and it was talking about ethical organizational culture. But at the same time, I was reading about some peace studies stuff. And I came across some peace studies literature written by articles like David Fabrow and Ray Kelly that were talking about attributes of relatively nonviolent societies. And I was noticing that those were matching up really well with the attributes that I was saying were good standard ethical business conduct behavior. And it was at that point I thought, 
I wonder if there's something there. I mean, particularly, this is like the year 2000, 1999, 2000. I mean, a lot of people were still asking questions, you know, why be, why be ethical in business? You know, why think about it at all? And, you know, you stay out of trouble. It's new leadership. You know, it empowers people. There was stuff like that. But I thought, you know, if you could come up with an answer that said, if you're ethical in business, you might even reduce the likelihood of bloodshed. That's an interesting answer. And so I decided that I wanted to explore it a little bit. I recruited a colleague who was a senior colleague and a very, very dear friend, Cindy Scapani, who had enormous credibility within the school. And I said, could we do a conference together? And we did. It was co-sponsored by a private donor and the William Davidson Institute and the Aspen Institute. It was in 2001, and no one wanted to come. No one wanted to come. We couldn't get speakers for the conference, and no one was signing up for the conference. People thought that people, good friends, good friends were telling Cindy and me, please stop this. Please stop this. You're ending your career here. You should not be talking about wild, crazy issues like this. And then 9-11 hit. And all of a sudden, our conference was overflowing. Everybody wanted to say something. Everybody wanted to be there. And our conference was not on terrorism, per se. But it was at that moment that everybody was so shattered by what had happened that they wanted to do something. And so we started conferences. We did three. And then we continued from there, and I moved on from there to George Washington University, which I always said that GW wasn't just in the right place in Washington, D.C. for this kind of work. It's in the right neighborhood because you're two blocks from the State Department and two blocks from the U.S. Institute of Peace and three blocks from the White House and two blocks from the, from the World Bank Institute. And so it just took off on its own, but it was because of this connection that I saw between good, solid, ethical business behavior and sustainable peace. And I'm sure that we'll talk about some of the more particulars on that. But there in 2002, after about the first conference, I said, is this question worth failing at? You know, if I look back 10 years and I said, okay, I tried this, but it didn't work. I said, this is a question worth failing at. This is something that you go after. And 10 years is supposed to be this time where you go after a big question. I'm going to have this. I'm going to sell out the next 10 years of my career in order to try to figure this out. And I've been doing it for about 25 years now. And um, I love it. I think it's interesting. I think it's important. And I want to keep going. But that's kind of how it started. But as you say, you know, the, the question worth failing at just shows how, how hard it is to find a way of creating peace. And I mean, you know, as a podcast, we're, as you introduced us, we're, we're business fights poverty. We talk about the kind of practitioner peace element um, quite a lot. And, and, and therefore, I was wondering whether I could unpack that a little bit with you. So if you're a practitioner sitting within a business, what would be your advice to them? How do they contribute positively towards peace? That's a good question. And this is going to be a long answer because at first I want to develop a little, uh, some categories that, that I've written about over the years. One is the, the, uh, the peace entrepreneur. It's kind of like a social entrepreneur. And there are some businesses that decide that they want to do business and in the process of doing business, they want to contribute to peace. There was an organization in Northern Ireland several years ago during the Troubles that intentionally hired half Catholics and half Protestants for them to have the opportunity to work together and see that that other side were human beings, as opposed to just someone that you threw rocks or worse at. There is an organization in Washington, D.C., at George Mason University, that does tours in Israel-Palestine with, um, with clerics from, from both faiths so that people who are tourists, who are paying tourists, 
can find out you know, firsthand what the issues are. And so those are social entrepreneurs. Those are peace entrepreneurs. Those are ones that set out to do something specifically. There are others that I call doing corporate foreign policy, which view themselves as being geopolitical actors on the international stage. They're not American companies or French companies or Chinese companies or whatever. They're, they're their own independent geopolitical actors. And they do make calculations according to what is going to be the best for them. And then there's a lot of other businesses too. And this is the one that I tend to focus on the most that don't necessarily have any idea that they're doing anything with peace at all. But because of the premise that I started with a few minutes ago, that ethical business conduct actually correlates with peace, that there are a lot of things that they can do that has a positive impact toward peace, whether or not that they know it. If they do know it, they might even practice it more mindfully. Well, what are some of those examples, which can apply to those other categories as well, but these, what I call unintentional peace builders. One is, and the, let me start off with the really, really practical things, and then I'm going to expand a little bit more theoretically. Early in my, my work on this, I was, I was talking to a, a person at General Motors, because I was still at Michigan and you know, General Motors is in Detroit, and it's a short, short hop over there from Ann Arbor. And I was you know, talking about business and peace. He said, Tim, I'm just, I'm just trying to make a buck here. I mean, trying to meet the bottom line. I, I, I peace. I mean, what do I have to say about peace? It's not an unfair question. And so, but here's one of the two or three things that I think are very, very practical that every business practitioner can can do. One is, while I'm not an empirical scholar, and neither was Cindy, we did a very simple correlation that showed that the, according to research done in Germany by Transparency International and also by the Heidelberg Institute for Heidelberg Institute for Peace Research, we showed that there was a really good correlation between those countries that are the least violent and those countries that resolve disputes in their country relatively nonviolently. And the other being true as well, those countries that are the most corrupt, according to Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, resolve disputes by violence the most times. So it's 14% if you're the least corrupt, 26% if you're the next least corrupt, uh, next least corrupt. Uh, 44% if you're the second most corrupt on a quartile basis, and 60% if you're the most corrupt. And these are correlations, so there could be other factors, but it seems that it makes sense that corruption and violence are linked. That you can imagine that in order to sustain corruption, that you might have to utilize violence in order to keep everybody under control. And you can imagine the kind of frustration that builds up in a society if everything is corrupt. So, one really concrete thing that a business can do is to have as strong as anti-bribery policies as they possibly can. Because in doing that, you are shifting the way the business works. You're shifting the way that the culture works towards something that is more peaceable as opposed to the one that's more violent. Now, Cindy and I did that study back in 2001, 2002, something like that. And I was both heartened and amused that Transparency International came out with a similar study here about a year ago, saying that there is a relationship between corruption and violence. <laughs> yeah, we, we told you that. And I'm glad that you're on board because we think that it is true. So, I mean, there is a concrete thing because if you go to business again and say, you know, we want you to think about peace, it's like, that's, that's, you know, when I first started doing this, people looked at me like I was a leftover, you know, hippies, you know, liberal from the 60s. And I'm a little bit too young for that or a failed contestant for a beauty contest of, you know, I want world peace kind of a thing. I'm clearly not that. So, I mean, it was, uh, uh, that you know, companies look at people a little bit strangely if they think that their work is connected with peace. But there's a really concrete thing 
that businesses already have an incentive to do. And if they do it more mindfully, they're doing something. Second example, this is something that Cindy did with um, a colleague, uh, Terry Dworkin, who was at Indiana University. I am now at Indiana University, but Terry and I did not overlap, although we did write together a couple of times. And that showed a similar kind of a correlation between gender equity and gender empowerment and violence. That exactly those countries where women are abused the most, harassed the most, have the least opportunity, are exactly those countries that have the most violence. And the opposite is true as well. There's another really concrete thing. You want to contribute to peace with your the way you do business. Protect women, empower women, give them a chance, value them. You're doing something that's very concrete. And then the third thing that is a little bit more esoteric, but not too much, is that quality theorists have been talking to us for years about the way that you improve a quality product or service is to make sure that those who are creating the product or service have a voice to be able to speak up if there's something wrong with the product, because they're right there. They can say something about it, and they can do something about it right away. Well, voice has been correlated with nonviolence for a long, long time. It's part of what makes democracy uh, better or beneficial, because everybody has a voice to speak up and to object or to settle issues or negotiate. All those kinds of things kind of go together. But again, if a business is providing people within their organization, not with corporate democracy, but just the ability to be able to speak speak up about what is going on in their work, they're doing something to shift the culture away from something that leans toward violence and something instead that leans toward peace. Just a couple other things that I'll I'll throw in there, because I put all of those kind of in the community dimension. Cindy and I created kind of a three-part typology of the contributions business can make to peace. One is economic development. Do your business well, because you avoid poverty, and there's correlations between poverty and violence. So if you can give people employment and jobs, that's a good thing. Now, it's a certain kind of economic development, because it's not exploitation or colonialism, but it's a certain kind of kind of gentle commerce, as Steven Pinker might refer to it, and then following rule of law, which is part of what bribery is about. And so those things, your rule of law, economic development, and then having a, a community within your organization as well as being a good corporate citizen to your external community. Those are things that businesses can concretely do. And again, when you're talking about gender equity, bribery, and voice, those are things that a well-run business does already. It's just that they have a bigger impact than what they may have expected. Absolutely. Fascinating. And it's really interesting because when you start unpicking it, I find myself nodding along. Yeah, of course that makes sense. I can totally see why that works, but it's until it's broken down and thoughtfully reconstructed you're like oh yeah <laughs> sit now and um, for anybody listening i'll put links into the words that sit alongside the podcast so that you can go and delve into that deeper and, and pick up the the nuances as well and, and make sure you can sort of take something forward back into your business i want to now flip that on its head though tim just to play juxtaposition because for some they'll argue that and potentially quite passionately that businesses do the opposite that they cause trouble they they are a source of i mean sounds extreme violence and war but like you know, they, are, they sit in places that are, are unhelpful. First of all, do you agree with that? And how do you deal with it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because it's something that has been, it, it's taken me a while to get used to that question. And so one response is that I've, I've been a business ethics professor for 38 years now. The reason that the field of business ethics exists in the first place and you need to have professors teach it is because businesses frequently do a lot of crappy things. That's why you need to have an ethics professor to tell them stop doing those bad things. And so, I mean, I am I have 
you know, for decades have been internalized that, well, you know, business has some problematic kinds of things that they do. But then here for the last like 25 years, like I mentioned earlier, I've been talking about, well, these are the positive things that they can do. And I immediately get hit with, well, but they all do these bad things. And I'm like, of course they do. That's, that's why I have a job. But I mean, it's a, it's, 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 it's a serious point. I mean, I'm making light of it, but it's a serious point. Business, like just about every other thing you can imagine, music, sports, art, whatever, is ambivalent. Religion is ambivalent. There can be a positive to it and there can be a negative to it. We are prone, I think, to consider the negative of it. And one of the things that I want to do is not to be Pollyannish of saying, well, it's a good thing too, but to be able to give people the voice and the understanding that that is a possibility. Uh, One of the things that I've noticed in my career, again, it's been a long career at this point, is that my students early on, I remember one of them in particular came up to me and thanked me because you're the first person that I ever heard said that business might be able to be ethical and be successful. I've never even thought of that. They came into this, their MBA program or undergraduate program too, with the idea that the only way that I'm going to be able to make money is to be a, a, a crook or be a jerk or a bad or something like that. That's the way, that's what you're going to have to do. And I was suggesting to them that, well, unfortunately, you can't make money that way. We could see a lot of examples of that. But there are other ways to do it too. Other ways that you can feel good when you go to bed at night and that you can look yourself in the mirror and you can be proud of what you're talking about to your family and stuff like that. And that was a revelation to them. Now, I think that there has been improvement in the last 20 years in large part with organizations like Business Fights Poverty that have been able to demonstrate to people really concretely, here are the ideas, here are the practices that allow you to do things that are positive, business and pieces along those lines. I mean, that you can make a positive contribution to the world with your business model. But that is not to say that there are not a lot of still business problematic behaviors that businesses have. And I definitely agree with that. I just want to even, I, I don't want people to surrender to the negativity that that's the only way that it can exist. So I do agree that businesses can be bad. In fact, when I go give presentation, when I go give presentation to, to, to other business you know, schools or business students, when they hear what I have to say, they look at me with a degree of curiosity. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. When I go to a peace center, they look at me in horror. It's like business, business doing something, but they have it. They, they have a very clearly understand that business is the bad guy. And you know, it's really deep in our communities, in our, in our, in our lives. Think of the number of times that you have ever seen a positive depiction of business in a children's movie. Business, or almost any movie for that matter, but business is almost always the bad guys. I mean, they're, they're always the bad guys. And I remember um, early in my career that I went to a meeting of the Society of Business Ethics. And the president of the society at that time was famous guy, Ed Freeman, one of the great, great figures in the field of business ethics ever. And, and a really funny and a really sweet, sweet man, too. And Ed's presidential address for that, that meeting, that summer conference meeting, was business sucks. And his argument was, we have this narrative that business is always bad. And it's important for us to provide alternative narratives to that, not to dismiss when it is bad, but to provide the alternate alternatives of when it can do something positive. 
And that's what I'm trying to do. So I agree with the, those who are passionate, or I wouldn't say I agree. I recognize the point of people who are passionate about what the bad things business can do, but there's an alternative narrative that can give us hope. It's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before. And I always think of humans, like we over-index on positivity. You know, we're, we're overly positive about, you know, tomorrow it's going to be sunny or the world's going to be better, or I'm going to achieve my goals this year, even though I'm clearly not going to. And it's really interesting that we still need to have those written in baddies. And yet business is really just a collection of people, which, which for most of us, is the way we, we, we put food on our tables and, and, and put clothes on our children's backs. You know, it's, it's not as though business is something that anybody could actually touch. It's just some people that do the same sort of thing. That is true. And, and, and to, to amplify that or to run with that a little bit further, one of the things I make a really big point in my, my business ethics classes is that there is just one kind of business. There's lots of kinds of businesses. There's small, medium enterprise businesses. There's family businesses. There's public corporations. There's companies when they did their initial public offering that says, yeah, we love your investment, but this is the way that we play the game. And even within publicly held companies where the only common denominator might be to make money, You've got different kinds of investors. You know, some of them are ESG investors. Some of them have, I want money in the next 37 minutes. And so there's a lot of different kinds of businesses. Some businesses are going to be more attuned or willing to take on some of these things that I'm talking about. Others may not be, but business is not monolithic, just like everything else. I mean, your religion is not monolithic. Music is not monolithic. All these, there's lots of variations. And sometimes I get worried that we just, drill down on one kind of a characterization of whatever it is that we're looking at and fail to see that there's lots of variety and diversity within all kinds of organizations. Oh, absolutely. And, and also, I think there's that piece, which is, and I say this from, you know, I, I worked in a bank shortly after the uh, financial crash. And, and for a lot of the people in that bank, you know, my job is to keep Joe Bloggs money safe. And I get up and I do that every day. And there's this thing over here that's horrendous and it's linked to my job, but it's not my job and I have nothing to do with it. And it's, some, you know, it's a decision-making piece. So it's that sense of um, peace, as you say, and also potentially causing harm. Actually, it, again, comes down to that kind of decision-making and you know, at what collective level that's made. And I'm going to switch up the conversation a little bit again, because I'm very mindful, Tim, that you're sitting in a very unique position, watching, observing, influencing, being part of, piece and its constructs. And I was wondering whether it's changed. I sort of want to delve a little bit into borders and whether, you know, is peace, has peace changed in the, in, the, in the way that potentially violence or other types of unrest happen in terms of what we should expect going forward as well, whether that's within borders, across borders or, or something else indeed over time? Uh, yeah, it's it, it's change. It's changing and trying to figure out the trajectory and what it's going to look and feel like, I think, is going to be a real challenge. And it's actually one of the I will answer that question, but it's one of the uh, it's one of the reasons why I've been so heartened with the growth of the field of business and peace. I hosted I mean, there's there's hundreds of people, academics now working in this area. You know, whereas in 25 years ago, I mean, the, Jane Nelson, um, you know, wrote that really nice uh, book, uh, The Business of Peace, that you know I read early on when I was doing my writing. Cindy and me, Virginia Hoffler. I mean, there was a few people who were you know, writing 25 years ago on, on this, but now there's there's hundreds of people, and they're PhD students who are doing their dissertations on this stuff, and they're applying empirical skills that I don't have, 
which I think is absolutely fantastic. And as a matter of fact, I challenged people to do 25 years ago. Cindy and I, who are both lawyers, said, you know, here's a prima facie case. You know, this is a case that makes sense. This is a case that can go to court. Now we need to have the people who can actually document the evidence of exactly what it looks like and where it's going to go. And I think we're actually in a position to have those scholars coming through the ranks who are going to be able to do that. So it's, it's, it's a tough question. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts here. It's a tough question, but I think we're actually in a pretty good spot to be able to have people address that. Now, to your question more directly, as I'm vamping here a little bit, I mean, it used to be that, I mean, particularly in the 80s, 90s, that, people, that scholars would say that most violent clashes, most, most conflict occurred within, within the same nation state, within borders, whether it was terrorism or whether it was a separatist group or something like that. It was within borders that you would see violence occur. Now, that does beg a little bit of a question of, well, what if one side doesn't think that the borders are right? Uh, I mean, I think you can even look at Putin and say that he didn't think that the borders were right, that Ukraine should be part of Russia. Well, clearly, Ukraine and the rest of the, or most of the rest of the international community had a, you know, has a sharp disagreement with that. So there is that caveat to it. But at the same time, most of it, were, most of it was civil war, like 90% of the conflict was, was civil war. That's still probably true that most of the conflict is, but you look at what has happened with Russia and Ukraine, you look at the threatening rhetoric that, that China has toward Taiwan, and you look at other places as well, and you're seeing the, at least the, you've seen the reality of potentially more possibility of cross-border kinds of war. And then you want to move that a little bit further to make it really murky in two respects, is cyber war war. You know, I teach an MBA class, and I, I call it Peace at Work, and we, we start off with business and peace. And it's one of my first questions, is, is cyber war war? Because typically there's not bloodshed. Uh, and really, my work to date really has been more, what are the things that organizations, companies can do in order to prevent bloodshed? There's another argument that says that makes peace much more associated with social justice. I mean, Gandhi... and I mean, when you say Gandhi, I mean, everybody has to stop. Guess what? Who's going to argue with Gandhi, right? So, I mean, Gandhi said that poverty is the worst form of violence. And I'm not going to argue with Gandhi either. So, there's a point to that. I I have found it harder to get my hands around what that looks like because it makes it so broad. But that's not to say that there's not a really good point to it. And if you acknowledge that point, then to look at what cyber war does and the disruptiveness of cyber war and what are sanctions for that matter. I mean, what, how do we characterize that? How do we characterize that as war? Is the absence of that peace? Um, I mean, that, those become new things to try to define and try to figure out where they are. And then there's another component too that, that I don't know how to think about quite yet. And it was a a book that came out, and the, the authors, uh, I apologize to the authors, the, the authors in the name of the book um, slipped by mind right now. Uh, but they basically argued that with the antisepticness of fighting, you know, firing your cruise missile or hitting a button or, or whatever, that we've kind of anesthetized the killing that goes on with war, and that makes it easier to do. And so you think you're, you're bringing people out of harm's way because they're pressing a button as opposed to be there with a bayonet, but ultimately someone is bleeding. And so, I mean, how do we feel about all of those kinds of things? And those all get connected to borders and cross borders and really the definition of what peace and war are. And I think that those are malleable concepts. I don't think that there is one definition of it. 
I think what defines a border at one time and a place can be different later in a time and place. But I will also say this, that this makes it more complicated for business. The more a war is within borders, the more leverage that businesses can have. To go back to Northern Ireland here for a second, you know, when it, it, as the troubles were finally almost ready to, to, to wind down, business community in Northern Ireland you know, came together and said, we, we need to stop this, in part because we, we'll make more money with tourism if we stop throwing rocks and shooting each other. And that provided room for politicians on both sides to be able to negotiate if you've got the business community is endorsing a way to find peace. That's easier to do within a set of borders than if you're cross-borders. If you're going cross borders, you've got sovereigns that don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily have the same kind of impact. You can, sometimes you can. There's the famous, there was the famous example that Thomas Friedman of the New York Times wrote about in the 90s when India and Pakistan were eyeball to eyeball about a potential nuclear exchange after Pakistan developed its nuclear weapon. And according to Friedman, executives from General Electric had access to and went into both presidential palaces and basically said, you know, calm this down because there's a lot that we can, a lot of money that both of you can make if you don't have a nuclear exchange. Uh, yeah. And, th- and that was helpful. And so it can happen, but it's harder to happen cross borders, I think, than it is within the borders. And so the, the, the border issue, as it becomes more cross border, becomes harder for businesses to do. You almost have to pick a side at that point. But it also leads to these other kind of questions of exactly how are we defining these things, whether they cause bloodshed or not. I got a little bit off tangential, but I hope that was a little bit helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, just that surprising open of stuff that you wouldn't think about on a day-to-day, but actually has such huge ramifications for business in terms of where you can do business, how stable it is, where you can influence and, and when. So uh, thank you for sort of peeling that back for us, Tim. And I, I wondered whether I could sort of follow up in terms of where do you see that trajectory going? I'm, I'm very mindful, as you mentioned, whether it's the conflicts that we've got already taking place and or brewing, but also I'm thinking about the uh, bigger system changes that we're seeing. You know, I'm sat here in the UK having had a lot of rain recently and more named storms in the last month than we've had in five, ten years. Do you see that? affecting what should we expect well i think it's going to climate change kind of issues and and disease kinds of issues i mean gosh we saw that just with the pandemic here a couple years ago of the kind of disruptiveness that that um you know disease and how do you handle disease and who has the authority to deal with the disease and spreading of disease and so you would see that and climate change obviously has no respect for borders whatsoever either and so it is going to be putting pressure on people in different places and in different ways. And, and that will have an impact too. I mean, what happens if you are living in a country that needed rain in order to grow food and it's not there anymore, but your next door neighbor isn't affected and they have food? I mean, wouldn't you expect that there to be some sort of a conflict to con- along those lines? Or if your, your city is inundated with the ocean now that didn't exist before. Where do those people go? What are the impacts on the places where they do go? All of those kinds of things of climate change, economic development generally, inequality in economic development, uh, disease, all of those things are, are things that 
it's hard to think how they will not exacerbate already existing tensions. And so, and it's going to be a moving target and no one really knows. I mean, I've looked at these models. I mean, I looked at the model of exactly, you know, if there's a, a three foot increase in the, in the ocean, then who gets flooded and stuff like that. And, and, but I mean, nobody really knows, but you can look at those and they're kind of scare the hell out of you. But, but I mean, we don't know exactly where it's going to go or, or what technology might be benefited. Very much unknowns, very unsettled things. But I can't imagine how they're not going to have the potential for exacerbating conflict. And of course, once you've had the exacerbation of conflict, business, whether it likes it or not, gets in the middle of it. It gets in, in the middle of what happened to our supply chain. It gets in the middle of how do we transport stuff. It gets in the middle of what sovereign government has now nationalized its stuff because it's the only way that they're going to feed their population and stuff just got taken away from us too. And so I don't have an answer of where it's going to go, but I think it's going to go in a way that we're going to require, I mean, nimble isn't even close to the right word of, of how, how significant we're going to have to be in order to be able to adapt. And, you know, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice of how well an adaptation is going to go. Yeah. That wasn't very hopeful or positive. Sorry. Oh, yeah, but, <laughs> well, okay. So we're now, okay. It might be not positive, but at least we're going to get practical now. So if we <laughs> know it could have been potentially worse, we talked a bit about what businesses can do to kind of mitigate or, or help protect from creating kind of violent situations. So the anti-bribery and corruption, gender equity, um, and, and other pieces to sort of have voice. What does it actually mean or how do you actually create peace? So I, I don't know anything about this at all. I, I sort of come at this from a totally kind of curious, I would like to know a bit more. But I heard once somebody saying about Northern Ireland, for example, that it really took to the point where people wanted peace. They actually were ready for it. They needed it. And I, I, how, do you, how do you create those conditions? How do you speed up when people have got to the point when they're in conflict? the peace process. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I think that we do have to acknowledge, or two things we have to acknowledge, is one, I don't think that peace is ever, at least in this life, it's not going to be eternal or perfect. There's always going to be a degree of inequity. There's always going to be a degree of unfairness. And second, there's always going to be the incentive for someone to take advantage of that and demagogue that or utilize that for their own purposes. I mean, I, unfortunately, those are the realities. There's never going to be a perfect, I mean, I, I think, I don't think that you can have any kind of a sustainable peace. I mean, other than, you know, what was it they you know, said of, uh, was it Hannibal? I may be getting that mixed up of, you know, you know plowing you know, the city under and calling it peace because it would no longer existed because there's no war anymore. I think that there's, um, there's a sense of, there has to be a sense of fairness and justice if it's going to be sustainable. And, and those are inexact. We're never going to completely reach those. We can reach places along those kinds of lines or um, areas of reasonable satisfaction, but it's never going to be perfect. And there's going to be people who will exploit that to their own selfish advantages. So I think that you, you have to kind of put that in mind. There are going to be more psychologically, there are going to be times and places where people are just tired of it. And I think that what you described uh, in Northern Ireland, that people were tired of this. We need to move on. There's uh, enough. We need to find a way to move on. 
I am hopeful, I'm sure we'll get to this probably a little bit later, I am hopeful that maybe various parts of the world which are very angry these days with each other within borders might be getting to the point of, I've had enough of this, I would like to find a way to still be friends with my neighbors. I don't know if that's true yet or not. But I do think that the more, and this is something I will follow back up on later, the more we can find multiple identities in who we are as human beings, the easier it is to achieve peace. The more you define someone else as an other, someone else as an enemy, someone else as a thing, the easier it is to kill them. One of the, those books that I mentioned right at the beginning of our, uh, our, our conversation here that got me started on this was a book by a guy named Ray Kelly, who's an anthropologist at the University of Michigan. And he wrote a book called, I think it was Warless Societies. And one of the things he, he said is that one of the key things that allows war to happen is what he called social substitutability. And what he meant was when the other side is no longer a father, brother, mother, sister, friend, fellow cheerer of a team, they're a uniform that is the other side that needs to be then killed. So you remove the humanity of the other side, and you're just identifying that identity as something that I don't like. And that's when you have us versus them. And when you have that us versus them, which, by the way, I would say is different than us and them. I think those are very different things. We all need an us. We all need our family. We need our friends. And if they're not in our family and friends, then they are in a them. That's, that's, that's natural. But it's when it's us versus them, and that them is dehumanized. and then things get very, very dangerous at that point. And so I think that when you're looking at things like you know, peace and sustainability, I think there needs to be a dimension of strong dimension of fairness and justice. There also has to be a way that you hang on to each other, even when you're in the midst of disagreements, so that that person remains a human being, as opposed to a thing that you're just going to kill. So interesting, isn't it? I mean, it shouldn't be interesting, but it's so important, perhaps is a better word. It reminds me of, um, there's an amazing TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And that sort of same sort of sense of like, we are 3D, there are lots of reasons and facets, et cetera, to us and, and to delve into that. And I wanted to, to follow up on that a little bit in terms of, to your point about saying, okay, we're not ever, there's, we're never going to live in a truly just, truly fair, everybody having exactly the same society. How do we come to accept this or, or at least fight for it peacefully. I, I know that you've recently done some work, which is a bit different, a bit of a different twist, which is about looking at sort of creating safe spaces to disagree with each other and to not, I don't know, have to agree. I was wondering whether you could share a bit about that kind of latest thinking that you've been doing and, and, the, and the research and the work that you're leading on that. So I'm- I am so, you, you shouldn't have asked that question because I get really charged up about this issue. This is a lot of fun to do. Let me start it off by telling you, telling you a story of how I got into this one. So, you know, I mentioned that I was doing my business and peace work first at University of Michigan and at George Washington University. And uh, during that time, I wrote four books on, on business and peace. The last one was Stanford University Press and called The Diplomat in the Corner Office. And I was writing that just as I was leaving GW to come out here to the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. So I came out here to IU 
uh, in the Midwest. And I'm a native Midwesterner, so I'm very, very comfortable out here. But I came out here, and you know, I've written four books at this point in Business and Peace. My wife is looking at me. She said, how much more can you possibly say about this subject? Why don't, why don't you shut up for a while? And so I, you know, and it's like, well, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And, and IU does have a really good school of international affairs. It's good out here. But at the same time, you know, I'm not in Foggy Bottom anymore. I'm not in Washington, D.C. anymore. It's a different kind of a feel than what I, that I was in. One of the really great things about being out here at Indiana University is that it has, according to many sources, the world's greatest school of music. And it is amazing. The Jacobs School of Music is an amazing place. And I have a musical background. And, and so, I mean, I was like so excited to be here around folks at Jacobs. And I wanted my children to take advantage of that. So my sons, who were then six and nine, took part of what Jacobs School of Music called the Young Pianist Program, where they the graduate students and some of the faculty were teaching these little kids how to play. I mean, how good is this? This great music school. And they're teaching my six-year-old son how to play the piano. This is great. So I'm sitting outside their practice rooms or their you know, lesson rooms. They're both having their lesson at the same time, you know, just a couple of doors down from each other. And I'm sitting in the hallway. And I'm, look, I'm doodling on a, a lecture or a presentation or a case that we're going to be doing in my ethics class on corporate culture. And I'm hearing them. And I suddenly just thought, why couldn't you use music to nudge people to have a different psychological orientation to the problem that they're addressing? Music does something to us. Music has a psychophysiological impact on us. When we hear music, it's hard to stay still. We start tapping our toe and tapping our finger, and then we start bobbing our head and swaying, and we get up and it really does something to our bones. There's a lot of research that shows exactly that. And I thought, why couldn't you, could you harness that? And so I ended up taking some courses over at Jacobs, ended up meeting and partnering a woman, Connie Glenn, who uh, teaches a course called The Music of War and Peace. So Connie and I were off to the races that ended up with an edited book that we did with Rutledge on music, business, and peace. And it took off from there. And the first thing that I do with my students, not the first thing that I do, but the first thing I did with this research project with the students was I took Kohlberg and Gilligan's kind of melded them together and did a little bit of a riff on that, but said, you know, stages of moral development, because how we see something makes a big difference of how we do something. Think of it this way, um, before I get into that, if you were listening to the old movie Rocky, with the theme, you know, gonna fly well, fly now, you know, bum, 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 You listen to that, or Eye of the Tiger that was in one of the later movies, you're kind of in the mood to slug somebody in the mouth because it gets you all fired up, right? What's the mood that you have if you listen to the theme from the television show Friends? I'll be there for you. It's a different way of looking at things. And if we look at things through one set of eyes as opposed to another, it makes a difference in the kind of decisions that we make. So I do this riff. I'm not going to get into it here because it'll take way too long. The six stages of moral development. And I ask my students, my undergraduate and MBAs alike, to pick a piece of music that puts them in each one of those cognitive states of mind. One might be competitive. One might be perspective. One might be joy. One might be following rules and being disciplinary. And I tell them, not only are you going to understand moral development better, but you're going to walk away with something so that when you're in the workplace and you recognize that you're just not quite in the right state of mind, 
you can queue up your own song and help get you where you need to be. So it's a really practical thing to you. Everybody should do this. It's really, and it's great fun. I mean, the students love it. I mean, they're being asked to listen to their favorite songs and write a paper on it. How can you complain about that? So these are what I call nudges that you can use, not just music, sports, movies. In fact, you were talking about a TED Talk. I know this came up in a recent program that, that, that we did together, that I did a TED Talk in a dog park and uh, during COVID because you couldn't have people in an auditorium. So I did it in a dog park. And one of the things that, that I mentioned in the dog park is that people go to the dog park, they don't know what their political affiliations are. Their dogs are just playing. And you know, the dogs teach them how to play because the dogs come to the dog park in their pack, who they love. They get out of the car and then they've got another dog. Well, is that an enemy or you know, what is that? Well, they start sniffing each other's butts and they end up becoming friends and they go off and play. And then they come back, they've got a new friend and they rejoin their pack. So they haven't been disloyal to their pack, but they've made a bunch of new friends because they took the time to get to know the other a little bit. So I said, there's an analogy that our, our best friends can, can help us with. So anyway, that these, there's these nudges that we have that puts us in these different states of mind. And a certain subset of those nudges are really good bridge builders. They help us connect with others. There's an organization here. I know it's in the States. I'm not sure if it's elsewhere or not. I'm a member of it. It's called Braver Angels. And they intentionally get Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives to sit down with each other to try to talk about the difficult issues that we are facing. And there was a columnist from the Wall Street Journal, Elizabeth Bernstein, who is an IU graduate. And I interviewed her for a little podcast that I do from time to time. And because I read what she wrote and she said, what do they talk about? You got these two people are totally at odds with each other. And so what's the icebreaker? What do they talk about? And they talk about their dogs. That was the number one thing that they talk about. They talk about their dogs. And after you've talked about your pets or after you've shared that you cheer for the same team or that you listen to the same music or whatever, you're not going to change each other's mind politically or socially, but you've got something to hang on to that that is a human being that you have a connection with even in the midst of hard conversations. That's what I'm talking about, safe places. That when you, if we have an understanding that we have multiple identities, we're not just liberal or conservative or whatever the political persuasions are in the particular country where a listener is right now, that you also share something else. Identifying that you can share something else gives you the possibility of holding on to each other even when you disagree. And I will tell you that that's the second step I do with my students, again, both undergraduates and MBAs. I said, give me an example of a time in your family, in your sorority, your fraternity, in your business, or wherever, that you saw a shared cultural experience or a shared artifact, music, sports, food, your pet, that allowed you to find common ground with someone that previously you'd been disagreeing with, or you watched that happen. And they stop for a second because it's so conflictual these days. I mean, you really, really could do that. And then it just pours out of them. Well, of course I did. And it could be as simple as the day that someone brought cookies to work or that they overheard somebody talking about a show that I like that show too, but I hate you, but I like that show. And it's like, now what do I do? I, I like this person that I hate. And well, now I'm having a conversation. It complexifies, it complexifies the relationship. And that's when I'm, I'm writing a book right now. I mean, this is what I'm, I'm all in. In fact, I got the, the documents from our literary agent about four hours ago. 
So I'm writing a book right now with a co-author, with a fabulous co-author. Co-author Kristen Hahn is her name. She's the executive producer of Apple TV's The Morning Show, if any of you have watched that. Uh, she's been the screenwriter and producer of, of movies like Cake and Dumpling and big Hollywood producer. And um, she co-owns Echo Films, which is a film production company in Hollywood. She and Jennifer Aniston own it together. Um, and I've known Kristen for 12, 13 years or so, and, and we're friends. And it's a really good partnership because I've got this you know, academic theory, and here's somebody who produces cultural artifacts. And it is the best. I mean, I've had a lot of wonderful co-authors, but she's just on a different planet. And so we're writing this book called Songs, Stories, no, Songs, Sports, Stories, and Suppers, How Shared Cultural Experiences Can Save America. We'll try to work on the world later. But right now we're working on America. And it's examples of how our neurobiology gives us the ability to change our mindset we have flexible minds. We have a lot of examples from primatology, from bonobos, from baboons, from chimpanzees, from hunter-gatherers. We can change the way that we think. Nudges help us change the way we think. And some of those cultural artifacts that help us change the way we think allow us to build bridges. And so we've got hundreds of examples, very concrete examples that come from famous people like Nelson Mandela, but also women's college softball players uh, that show us just exactly that. I think this gives us great hope. I really do. I don't know if we are worn out enough around the world, like you were just talking about in Northern Ireland, for people to be ready to hear it. But when they're ready to hear it, we're going to have something for them to help them get beyond the animosity and the anger and the dysfunction and find something. Again, you're not going to necessarily change people's mind, but you're going to find that that's a human being that I'm talking to as opposed to this evil person. Now, not everybody's going to be persuaded by that. There's still some who who benefit from the anger. But I think 90% of us would like to find a way to find each other. Oh my goodness, yes. And I think, I think it's also when you were talking, it's that piece that, I mean, the, the, the title of the book, which uh, when it comes out, please come back to us and tell us all about it. And for anybody listening, I'm definitely going to put links and updates into this as soon as it's, it's out. But the, the title itself, you know, Song, Sports, Stories and Suppers, it's, it's happening around kitchen tables or at bus stops or between beds in hospital wards, these, this peace building is happening all the time. And, and to codify it and give it the amplification, justification, or energy, or, or whatever the word is, that says this, this works and makes a difference, and we should, we should teach it and do more of it. Actually, you can totally see how that's missing from schools. We aren't, yeah. we aren't in schools teaching people to better understand or I, I quite like your language about complexifying relationships you know understand more about people and be prepared to have something in common but not be needing to agree with everything you can suddenly yes. see oh yeah we can we can do this we don't have to just keep saying oh I don't I don't understand that person or don't like them because they don't yeah. support the same team as me or whatever it just a real practical example, uh, a film that I, I, I just highly recommend to everybody. I mean, Invictus with Mandela is a great one. Um, Joyeux Noel about the world one truth. I mean, I can give you zillions of this stuff. But the one that I just most highly recommend, it's not going to be on this particular current issue right now that we have in 2024. But it was called uh, Sweet Dreams, Sweet Dreams for Rwanda. And it's about what happened in post-genocide Rwanda. And let's think about that for a second. A million people were slaughtered. I mean, there's no other way to 
to characterize it. In the U.S., if you took that as a percentage of people who died, it would mean that 40 million Americans were, were dead. I mean, that, that's the size of the number of deaths on a percentage basis that, that happened in Rwanda. So what happens after that? Well, this is a story about a group of women from both sides, Hutu and Tutsi, who s- said, we need, to, we, we need to find a way to connect. And so they started a drumming troupe. And apparently they were the first women to ever be allowed to play the drums, which itself is, if you want to even use that word, which itself is just kind of weird. But they played drums together. And they're really good. They're really, really good. And they had so much fun with each other that they ended up forming an ice cream business. So, and you watch what's happening. What's the, what, what connected them? And what is, what's connected them was music, drumming, and business. And um, I'll actually give you another example. I'm probably talking too much here, but, and how is that story, which is another cultural artifact, how is that story conveyed so others can learn from it through a movie, through film? With this, there was a reviewer for one of my books when I was, I, I was offered a book contract. I decided to, to, to not do it because I wanted to do this more popular-oriented book with, with Kristen. And one of the reviewers said, the thing about Fort is that he takes something that, if you think about it, is just so doggone obvious, but no one said that before. This is all obvious stuff. I mean, this is not brain surgery kind of stuff. This is stuff that we all know which is why it has so much potential power. I'm not talking about some grand esoteric thing that we all need to do. We know music. We know sports. We know movies. We know food. We know dogs. I mean, these are right here in front of us, and they have a practical ability to break through a lot of the animosity that we have to think. Tell you a quick story, then, I'll, then, I, then I will shut up because I really am taking too long. But, but years ago, I was... Um, my wife had had no children, and this was in the as communism was falling uh, at the time. And Albania was one of the last communist countries to fall. And the U.S. State Department said, and some there were three brothers, many others, but three brothers who escaped from Albania to what was then thought to be the safe haven of Yugoslavia, and were in, in a in a refugee camp in Yugoslavia. And the U.S. State Department said that we will allow some of these to come to the U.S. If there are families in the U.S. that will give them lodging, either in their home or buy a rent or to rent an apartment for three months, help them with the English language, help with some immigration, and ideally help get them a job. So this this guy came to live with us. He was 24 years old. It's, I won't use his real name. I'll just call him Petrov. Came to live with us, and I was we from our own research, and he verified that the practicing of any religion in Albania was punishable by death. And again, he wasn't exaggerating. So one night after dinner, uh, we're all talking. And I didn't have my PhD in theology at the time, but I had my master's. He knew I was interested in the topic. And he looked at me and said, Tim, who's God? Okay, let's roll up our sleeves here. We got a long night conversation here. And I wasn't you know, five seconds into my response. He said, I hate Muslims. I said, why do you hate Muslims? You don't even know what God is. He said, I hate Muslims. I said, why? He said, because I'm Catholic. I said, what does it mean to be Catholic? Said it means I hate Muslims. I said, you know, Petrov, you know, I, I'm not Catholic myself, but I did go to a Catholic university, University of Notre Dame, and I actually sang in a Catholic cathedral for a while, and I worked for a Catholic university. I have a lot of knowledge about what Catholicism is. I don't see where it says you're supposed to hate Muslim. I hate them. Why? Because I'm Catholic. We just went round and round on this for all the time. So finally, I said, who did you work with? 
because I knew that he ran, he was the chief of a brigade of people, of, of agricultural workers that picked vegetables and fruit. I said, who'd you work with? He said, well, a bunch of guys. I said, well, are they Catholic or Muslim? He said, well, they were both. Well, what'd you think of the Muslims? They're all right. All right? I thought you hated them. Well, I do. They're all right. And that was really, this was before I even became an academic. And so, I mean, this was a long way before I ever wrote about business and peace. But business provides the opportunity for people who otherwise would not work together to find common ground with each other, even if it's just to make money. I mean, there is a power that business has that in some ways I think is more powerful than any other institution out there in order to bring people of different walks of life, different religions, different beliefs to be able to sit down and do something together. I think it is a great place to then introduce some of these other cultural artifacts, because I think you can have spinoff effects that would go into the community as well. There you go, guys. Keep doing business just ethically and soundly and with right. gender equity and voice. Um, Tim, now I definitely don't think you should shut up for a while. Um, and <laughs> obviously, that your wife's awesome too. Um, but we are going to wrap up this conversation um, now. I could totally carry on, on this for, for a long time, and I'm going to give everybody <laughs> who's listened the long list of links that um, and and references that you've um, uh, referred to into the words that sit alongside, so that anybody listening can fill fill their boots with lots more of this really really important and uh, fascinating work. But Tim, I was just wondering. Clearly, you've got your book out shortly, and we will be following up on that one. But but what is it? What's next for you? Where are you? Where are you off to? Just to wrap us up. So. It's on this cultural artifacts and shared cultural experiences stuff. You know, I'm working on this book with Kristen, and um, we'll, it'll take a while to do. I mean, books take a long time to do, but I'm doing talks like this as well because I really believe that, as does she. I mean, I could write another book on business and peace and be happy, and she could be producing another movie and be happy, and we'll probably do both of those. But this has really gotten into us, and it's really... It is, it is a work of the soul that we really think it's important. And so, I mean, I'm still, I'm still going to be teaching and doing white-collar crime and corporate compliance and stuff like that. But I teach three courses on these concepts of business and peace and these cultural artifacts. I love what I do. Uh, I laugh that other than uh, family-related stuff and following my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame's football team, there's nothing I love more than walking into a classroom. And so I, I'm 65. I hope I got another 10, 15 years and, and that I can still do it health-wise and effectiveness. But that's what I want to be doing. And I want to be really expanding this idea of how we can find each other, even if we're disagreeing with each other. Oh, Tim, please do definitely keep going. And for anybody listening, I'll make sure I also put links to, to Tim's um, work and everything else as well so you can connect with him directly. Thank you so much, Tim, for giving your time so generously, but your wisdom and your insights and your practical advice. So, um, Tim, massive thank you today. Thank you, Katie. And keep up the good work with Business Fights Poverty. Fabulous organization. Oh, we'll try. <laughs> thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.